Pascal Emmanuel Gobry is a French intellectual and unconventional thinker and a kind of modern-day cultural apologist raising his young family in Paris. There, he writes regularly for The Week magazine and in outlets like The Atlantic, Forbes, First Things, Commentary Magazine, The Daily Beast, The Federalist, and at Quartz. As you'll hear in greater depth if you stick around to the end of this podcast, Pascal has a thought-provoking take on what actually drives human affairs. Everything you just talked about, economics, public policy, psychology, those things matter, but they're not the only thing that matters. Like a true Frenchman, Pascal stays unpredictable. When I asked, for example, about the recent fire at Notre Dame, he not only reported out on the view from the streets, but also called to mind that at any time, our own possessions could go up in flames. He plugged Michael Brendan Doherty's take on how many Europeans today view religion. In many homes, atop the living room mantle, there's a glass case with a label that reads, break glass if necessary. Some French Catholic parishes are still vibrant and active, he says, but for many Europeans, religion sits in reserve. It's there if you really need it, but preferably untouched. On populism, Pascal talked not only about Polish and Hungarian GDP, but also about C.S. Lewis's reminder that the Judeo-Christian ethic should never be honored primarily for its functional utilitarian value in the public square. Do that, he says, and the prize loses its power. As you'll hear, Pascal has an interesting take on the role of elites in French culture in fostering global multiculturalism rather than national assimilation. He also said the application of French commitment to laïcité, the constitutional claim that France is a secular republic, in fact has more to do with a broad bias against Muslim immigrants at a time when Muslims represent just under 8% of French society. As the project prepares to host eight European journalists, eight U.S. journalists, and six speakers for a new transatlantic Faith Angle Forum this fall. We're asking several talented thinkers for their broad perspective on European populism, immigration, nationalism, and ultimately pluralism. Pascal is a gifted mind. I hope you'll enjoy his insights. Today, we're very privileged to be joined by Pascal Emmanuel Gobri, who is a fellow with the Ethics Public Policy Center, but also a, a writer and uh, publishes in a lot of different outlets. Welcome to the United States. Thank you. How long have you been here on the ground? I flew in yesterday. Uh, tired or okay? I'm doing okay. We'll see how this goes on. Uh-huh. What's the time change between Paris, where you live, and here? It's six hours. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And is there a chance you might uh, join us for this upcoming forum and? France? <laughs> You're putting me on the spot right now. I'll do my best. Uh-huh. Okay. So we want to talk today a little bit about France, where you live. We want to talk about some of the themes of this conference, which will be focusing on immigration and on European populism, on populism generally, a little bit here in the States as well, and ultimately on the matter of pluralism. And then we, we want to talk about whatever else you want to talk about. You have a, a brief visit with us, and so we're, we're really happy to have you here. But of course, Notre Dame is on the minds of a, a lot of our, our listeners who followed that sort of horrible fire. What can you tell us from being there, and, and how do you see what happened? It was obviously a terrible event. It was a strange evening. So the way I learned about breaking news from France is concerned text from my friends from America and Britain. So I got a text like, why is Notre Dame burning? I was like, what? 
And then I, I saw it was real because at first I thought, oh, it's international news channels making an enormity out of something not real. And then I saw the images on Twitter and I was crestfallen. And I eventually walked over there. And by that time, you know, the fire was put out. There was not much to see. Some people were there praying and I joined them. For me, it is because, you know, there's always this sort of commentary like in the U.S., like, you know, this ridiculous controversy where Ben Shapiro was called a white nationalist for saying that Notre Dame represents Western civilization's Judeo-Christian heritage. There's a reason why people talk about the roots of our civilization as they see Notre Dame burn down and as so many people have this feeling of loss. But for me, the first lesson was personal. It's how many things in my life and your life are there that could go up in flames tomorrow. I mean, I live in Paris and Parisians are snobs. And one of the way that you're snobbish is that you don't visit your own monuments. Like a true New Yorker has never been to the Statue of Liberty, that kind of thing. And so, I mean, I'm a Catholic, so I I had been to Notre Dame a bunch of times, but there was this sort of thing where it was this thing over there. It wasn't part of my life on a daily basis, and all of a sudden it was gone. And that's the way it affected me personally, first of all. I've been taking my daughter to all the monuments that I can take her to since then. But just, I mean, generally, you know, I think that's... You know, for me, that's the biggest lesson before anything you want to say about, like, Western civilization and history and civilization. Although those discussions are also important to have. Mm -hmm. But that's my first answer to your Mm -hmm. question. I appreciate that. And what's the mood like now? We saw, you know, uh, flocking to fund rebuilding efforts by several business leaders and the like. Is Is the national mood rebounding quickly? How's that feel? It's always hard to tell the national mood. All I know about is Twitter and my friends. It is a bit strange in the sense that, you know, no one died. It is a cultural tragedy, but it's different from, let's say, a terrorist attack, like the 2015 terrorist attacks or the Charlie Hebdo shootings really affected the country deeply because it does affect people differently when there's actual bodies for very, very understandable reasons. So it's not like the country has gone into mourning or, you know, I mean, we had 5 million people on the streets the week after the Charlie Hebdo bombing because people had died and they had died for a specific value, which was free speech, and they had been murdered by an enemy. I mean, like, who are you going to march against? Like, bad fire protection regulations? Like, you know, but I think it's affected many people at a sort of semi-conscious level. My friend Michael Brendan Doherty, who we talked about, and whose book is coming out this week, and you should definitely buy it. You're welcome, Michael. That's right. At Amazon and all good stores, had this great phrase. He thinks most secular progressive people have Christianity, like, in a box somewhere where it says, like, break glass in case of emergency. Like, you know, it's easy to understand why you would feel a sense of loss as a Catholic. I think for... Non-Catholic Frenchmen who are the the majority, there's this interesting thing where they feel sadder. Obviously, there's they feel sad because it's a beautiful cultural artifact, but they feel more sad than that because it's a part of their history. It's a part of who they are, 
but why is that? Why is it so? And so I think this is pure speculation on my part, but I think there's a sort of realization on the part of many people that this part of the country's past, which we had thought was gone, and good riddance is, you know, not even past, more important than we thought. But I think we're going to see that play out over many, many years and in unexpected ways. So that might be a good segue to recalling, I mean, faithful listeners of this podcast will have remembered Henry Olson from uh, here at EPBC naming that there was this survey question on a recent German exit poll where where the, the question was asked, do you feel sorrow at the sort of loss of German heritage? I can't remember if that's the exact wording, but that was the basic gist. And he was saying that while that isn't exactly a question about religion, a religious culture. It is a, a question about culture that perhaps reflects some uh, religious rootedness that is maybe on the shelf, as you were describing there. You know, and so we're going to be doing a conversation in France in the fall about this populist wind that seems to have been blowing in England, obviously in. Hungary in, in, in a lot of places, Germany and Spain and Italy. And I wonder if you'd comment from the perspective of maybe you're, say, an American writer who is living with his family in the heart of Paris and has been for a while now, you know, those populist wins. What do you see there? Well, thank you for the very narrow and specific question. It is interesting to try to... I think one of the most... The way I can spin this answer to make it topical is... It is an open question, the extent to which the discontent, because it's mostly discontent, is socioeconomic versus cultural, because there's clearly an economic element, like nobody disputes that, but there's also the sort of prevailing analysis among elites as well, these people don't have jobs, blah, 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 and so they're angry, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and they latch onto those ideas. Well, you know, the two most quote unquote populist countries in Europe that have the most quote unquote populist governments that are really popular and so on are Poland and Hungary, and their economies are doing fine. Like Poland is growing 4% a year, low unemployment, and like all of the economic indicators are fine. So what is going on? And you look at Britain, the economy in Britain could be better, but it's certainly. You know, it's got very low unemployment and so on and so forth, and people still voted for Brexit. And so what is economic versus what is cultural? And obviously, you know, even those two categories are not like hermetic boxes. And then within that, from a religious perspective, there's very well-known passage from the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis, a Christian writer, 20th century, wrote this book, which is written as a series of letters from a senior demon to a junior demon explaining to him how to get his quote-unquote client over to the dark side. And so that's the device that he uses to make lots of points about human life and spirituality and so on. And there's a famous passage where Screwtape, who's the senior demon, explains to his junior charge that one of the best ways to get a Christian over to the dark side is to convince him that Christianity is the best means to achieve 
social reform or some other good. And like say economic flourishing, economic flourishing, you know, uh, strong families. Like you can pick an example that's associated with the left or the right, and you know that's that's how you get him because then the central thing in his life is no longer Christianity. It's that thing that he thinks Christianity is just a means to get there. And so you know, I always get sort of ambivalent when people who are sort of on my side, which is the sort of Christian populist friendly right, start talking about like rootedness and culture and history. Like I get it. Yes. Like I believe in those things. Those things are important to me. But there's also an extent to which, you know, rootedness is not an end in itself. You know, Chesterton had this line, I'm quoting 20th century apologists for some reason. The point of opening your mind is like opening your mouth. It's to close it on something good and not to walk around with your mouth open swallowing bugs. And so, you know, rootedness is good if you're rooted in something good. <laughs> it's not It's not good to just be rooted in like something. Um, and I mean, one of the most important intellectuals on the French far right, who is, I think, surprisingly relevant now, is Charles Maurras, who was in many ways a brilliant writer and a great intellectual and also an anti-Semite and a crazy person. But he was personally agnostic slash atheist, and he explicitly wrote that you know, every country should have a religion. It doesn't matter what, because it's there as a social group. And so his take on Christianity was, well, obviously Christianity is a pack of lies because the gospel writers were Jews and Jews lie. But it's the historic religion of France, so France should be a Christian nation. And there is that element on the sort of populist fringes, which is, Let's be rooted in the past and in historic values and whatever. It doesn't matter what they are. The most striking Notre Dame-related event that happened recently in France before the fire was this moment where this guy whose name escapes me, who's this far-right intellectual guy, went into Notre Dame, went up to the altar, put a gun to his head, and killed himself. And he put out a manifesto saying, you know, he killed himself because Western civilization is going down the tubes and everything is terrible. And he wanted to kill himself as a statement on this monument to Western civilization. Now, this guy was a pagan, like an admitted sort of neo-pagan who believed that Christianity was false. But he wrote that he wanted to do it in Notre Dame because it was the best symbol Mm -hmm. of the past. Well, I'm sorry, but, you know. If Notre Dame is a symbol of a pseudo-pagan past, then burn it down. Burn it down tomorrow. I see. Right, right, right. That reminds me that the pastor at a church we attended flagged the proverb that said, we ought not heap honor on a fool. And the idea that in the journalism space, so many quickly focus on Dylan Roof they quickly focus on the name of the killer at Christchurch right. in New Zealand. Right. You know, is bad. Actually, we ought perhaps to think about 
not listing yeah. his name and and sort of focusing on the rebuilding on the good and not giving the credit that that, that is so deeply desired by somebody yeah. like that who goes to the to the altar. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay, so that's a little bit on populism and you know how has immigration played into that in France? I mean, you've been there. Tell us how long you've been in the country and and what you see happening there and perhaps with your neighbor in in Germany. How does immigration uh, play into this? There's immigration in Europe? I, that's the first I've heard of it. I'm shocked. Well, I mean, I am French. I was born and raised there. I just happened to write professionally about the United States. Again, thank you for giving me these completely open questions that are super hard to answer. I figure since you've gotten so much sleep, we might as well give you a couple Yeah, more exactly, videos. exactly. Plus the jet lag, it's just wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, immigration plays a big role, and it's such a fascinating issue because it ties up everything, and obviously there's a narrative, well, okay, well, people are racist, and that's bad, boom, thank you, goodbye. Then there's the narrative about religion and culture and so on and so forth. There's the narrative, I think, one that we don't pay enough attention to, that it is about elites and who do elites work for. I think it's most clear in the United States because the United States has this settlement where there's one set of laws on the books and then a completely different set of actual laws. And so it's very clear that America's governing elites are just implementing an agenda with no regard for democratic accountability. And it's a thing that people are legitimately angry about because it's a legitimate thing to be angry about in a democratic republic. But it also works because of the economics of immigration where new immigrants, you know, push down the wages of the middle class but are good for the upper class because they're substitution labor. There is a clear visible sign of what happens or how you can feel how people can feel that their elites, their governing elites, don't see themselves as being in the business of defending the interests of their fellow citizens, but being in the interest of defending either their own class's interests or the interests of a sort of global elite class. And so I think that's one of the ways that's underappreciated, one of the underappreciated causes of anger over immigration across the West. And so I'm not an expert on Germany and German politics, so I'm, I won't comment on that. In France, there are two added specificities beyond that. There's a number of them. The first is just the sheer numbers. France has had, you know, because of its colonial past and so on, France brought in a larger share of immigrants than most of the European countries from its former colonies, and number does play a role. There is the economic stagnation where you have more immigrants and you have a less productive economy, then that adds on on top of it. And then you have this bizarre interplay of a rhetoric that is officially assimilationist with an elite class, and in particular, the discourse class, the journalists, intellectuals, and so on, who 
are not in favor of assimilation. They're in favor of multiculturalism. And so you have this weird disconnect where, you know, on the one hand, you're saying, well, you can come here if you forget your past identity and you learn the language and blah, blah, blah. And also, uh, French identity is nonsense and is a bunch of lies and is racist. And so you shouldn't. Uh, take on the new French identity. You know, again, having this American perspective, I think the multicultural model can work. The sort of like, just let people be free and that will make them feel good about their host country. And so over time, they'll assimilate. I think that can work. I think the assimilationist model can work and historically has been proven to work. What cannot work is this sort of, you know, half and half model where you're officially telling people to integrate and then in reality you're not. And then there's this whole fake issue of so-called laicite or secularism where we pretend that we have these historic norms against, for example, religious symbols in the public square and all that stuff, which is just completely false as a historical matter. Like nobody even... After the secular republic, after all that stuff, nobody had any problem with the religious symbols in the public square until they were Muslim religious symbols. And so laicite has become a way to say that you don't like Muslims or you don't like Arabs or whatever, but you can dress it up as I'm for laicite. And the problem is Muslim immigrants can see through that because it's crap. And so they're angry and rightfully so. Again, it's impossible to have a sane discussion of immigration because it's so large and complicated. You yeah, know, and yes. emotional. Sure. Mm. But and so I think that every discussion should be people should be able to air out their ideas and those should be openly discussed. So if you believe that Islam is incompatible with democracy, you should be able to say that and people should be able to debate that openly. You shouldn't mask it mm -hmm. as something else. Mm -hmm. And so in France, the situation is completely screwed up. And what percentage of, of those living in France today are, are Muslim? We don't know. Okay, okay. So we have this wonderful advisor help weighing in a little bit on the project and has been helping us think about this Europe conference who says that Muslim immigration and the upsurge in Syrian and Iraqi immigrants, refugees, reveals what a country actually believes about pluralism because it's just put there to the test. And we've also been talking a little bit recently about nationalism versus patriotism, what's, what's healthy, what's not. A healthy nationalism unhealthy nationalism versus love of country that is honorable. Europe, obviously, and the places where you are, has a complicated history when it comes to nationalism. But if we were to think for a moment about nationalism, uh, to give you another very focused, easy question, right. how do you see the recent history around love of country playing into this? I believe in patriotism. I believe in, I mean, you know, there's the old dichotomy, like patriotism, good, nationalism, bad, whatever. You can call it whatever you want. There's this, you know, famous book by this Israeli intellectual. Yeram Hazani. Yeah, yes, The yes. Virtue of Nationalism, where he says, you know, let's call a spade a spade. Let's just call it nationalism. 
whatever. And like everybody knows what we mean. You know, it's a bit of political genius on Trump's part that he's he used the word nationalism because, you know, the media class goes crazy and says, oh, it's code for white nationalism and actual voters hear nationalism and think, oh, yeah, I love America, too. Like, what's wrong about that? So it's whatever you want to call it. I mean, obviously, the Christian view on patriotism slash nationalism as on money, as on sex, as on anything else is that it is something good that God has given us to give him glory as long as we understand that it is a means to glorify God and not an end in itself. And so, you know, the Christian gospel is full of warnings about what happens when groups of people become a mob. Like, for example, they could crucify the son of God. Like, that's one thing. So, yeah, all of that's bad. But at the same time, I believe that people are meant for community and that nations are one of the most successful forms of community. And I mean, I'm a French patriot, nationalist, whatever, if we understand that word correctly. I think that's good. And I think one of the problems we're having is that it has stopped being okay to say to would-be immigrants, less so in America, because in America, sort of jingoism is still very much alive, but in France, it's not possible to say, well, you should learn the language and so on and so forth because we are awesome, because we are one of the greatest nations in the history of the world, which everybody outside our borders recognizes. <laughs> and so, yes, it is a problem. It's a problem with regards to the EU. It's a problem with regards to immigration, especially when it comes to France, which has as part of its DNA, the French Revolution, and so the ideas of the Enlightenment. And so it is a betrayal of what it means to be French do genocide or to do horrible things. That was the great symbolism. I'm a Gaullist, and that was the great symbolism of the Free French Movement. France, from 1940 to 1945, France was not a territory, not a language, not an apparatus of government. It was an ideal, and it was based in London and later in Africa. And that is part of what it means to be French. And so I am unapologetic about being a French patriot. Mm -hmm. I completely reject, but it's dying out, but I completely reject the sort of French far left idea that French patriotism equals fascism or whatever. Those people have become marginal in French society anyway. France has healthy patriotism, relatively speaking, I would say. I would not be saying the same things about Germany which has its own history, its own different self-conception. And so I would be very worried about a rise in German nationalism. European nationalism has been very good, and global elites have completely failed to just stop projecting because their interpretation of what happened after the fall of the Iron Curtain is that these people went from embracing communism to embracing another global ideology, which is, you know, the end of history, liberal democracy, and so on and so forth. No, the way that they understand it is that their nations were freed from the yoke of a foreign oppressor. And so they don't want another foreign oppressor, whether it's in Brussels or Moscow or Berlin. And so they have a very healthy nationalism because they still remember 
the yoke of foreign oppression, and that's very good. Mm -hmm. I mean, I generally believe that, yes, of course, it can be turned to bad ends because everything can be turned to bad ends, but nationalism generally is good. Certainly in the 20th century, it has killed a lot fewer people than transnational ideologies, Mm -hmm. and it has saved many more lives because, you know, what destroyed the Third Reich, it was British nationalism and American nationalism and French nationalism. Very good. Appreciate that. And so I know you're a student of Vaclav Havel. We've read you a little bit and encouraged following Pascal on Twitter, but you know... uh, Don't follow me on Twitter. (laughs) Save your lives. Save your Uh, souls. (laughs) But do you think that there's a role that religion is playing that sort of maybe it played more loudly 100 years ago or 200 years ago in some of these places. You know, George here has written about what happened with the former Polish pope, you know, but also the role of sort of civil society, of religion, of that sort of mediating institutions, middle level, that is part of the pushback against a a totalitarian state and and the like. How do you see that layer at work today? Is it far damper and quieter than it was 100 years ago? Is it still there? You mean religion in Europe? Yeah, that's right. You know, and in ob- France, and in France where you are. I mean, obviously, you know, yes, compared to 100 years ago, religion is, I mean, that's obvious. Religion has declined. The Catholic Church is a lot more vital and a lot stronger in France than most foreigners and most French people understand. I always tell people in Paris and in other big French cities, if you're five minutes late for mass, you're sitting on the floor. <laughs> And people do, literally. At my parish, which is completely average in every way, if we're five minutes late, we're sitting on the floor around other people who are happy to sit on the floor. And politically, you know, we had these huge anti-same-sex marriage protests. We had this candidate, Francois Fillon, who campaigned explicitly as a Catholic conservative, which was the first time in literally a century and just did extremely well politically until he sabotaged himself. And so Catholicism is a lot stronger, a lot more vital in France than most people understand. So that's part of it. And more generally, I mean, yes, obviously Europe has secularized a lot and it's creating a lot of problems. I mean, I think that as a Catholic, I believe that human beings are naturally religious. We're just built to worship. On some level, secularism doesn't exist. People just have different religions. And so, you know, that's the thing that Mohas was right about. Like, every society needs a religion to be a social glue. What he was wrong about is that it matters which religion it is, and religion is not just a social glue. And good religions are not even primarily a social glue. But you do need religion as a social glue. And you do need it as a way to look beyond GDP growth, to look beyond buying the next iPhone, to look beyond, you know, the now. And that is a serious problem that Europe is facing. I don't know how it's going to end, but the problem is there. I think, Pascal, that's probably a very nice note to end on. We have journalists working with us today who see primary economics driving things, others who see psychology driving things, others who see public policy driving things, and others still who see culture, religious culture driving things. And 
it's interesting as you sort of have been helping us think about various voices to ideally pull into a conversation about these large themes in Europe today to be mindful of the abiding role of religion in society, even in places where the broad story is that it's secularized. That's not really relevant, not really a player anymore. So on that question about the secularization and the desecularization of the world with a lot of events that are that are playing out, uh, we certainly look forward to working together and being part of this coming conversation. And I just wonder if I would invite you to may offer any other sort of closing thinking about um, the effort to get our arms around such large, large themes with a small group of journalists. Yeah, I think it's a very important effort. I think fundamentally ideas have consequences. People have worldviews. People have beliefs, secular, quote-unquote, or religious, quote-unquote. And they shape our behavior. We're not just utility-maximizing machines. We're not just apes that seek to reproduce and feed. We make choices, yes, based on those things. And yes, a lot of times we just use our beliefs as an ex post facto way to justify just acting on the basis of our instincts and our greed and all that stuff. Yes, that stuff is also true. But we also make choices on the basis of what we believe, of the stories we tell ourselves, of the stories that our society tells us that shape us and how we see the world. And... Any good journalist, because I am first and foremost a journalist and I try to do good journalism, has to understand that this is also a facet of the reality that we cover. And so everything you just talked about, economics, public policy, psychology, those things matter, but they're not the only thing that matters. And if you want to be a good journalist, like putting aside all culture war stuff, if you care about the craft, which I do, you should be mindful of that. And if that's not something, an aspect of human experience that you're comfortable with, that you know with, that you're familiar with journalistically, then you need to talk to people who do and you need to do the research. And that's why this event is an excellent, excellent thing and that I support it completely. Thank you so much, Pascal. We'll see you in November. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's conversation, don't forget to subscribe, and we'd appreciate if you'd rate and review the show, which helps get the word out. Thanks for listening.